you're listening to Threshold Radio with Sam Ronto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp. Forbidden archaeology, a portion of what is viewed as national security. Look at these lights going across the road. You can argue about Roswell all you want to, but something happened today. We're just collecting the data. Is we it don't need to debate out there. Government? Is it government? Is it alien? Yeah. An object was actually caught on a We're dealing with something genuine. This isn't make believe. Thresholds into other realms. You're listening to Thresholds Radio. I'm Anthony Kay. With me is Sam Ranto and John Stevenson. On today's show, we have Melon Thomas Benedict, the most studied near death experiencer. He's going to tell us where he went the whole hour and a half he died. Also, we have Michael Clean and much more. We're going to start off the show right away with Mel and Thomas Benedict right after this quick commercial break. We'll be right back. TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-info. Welcome back. Our next guest has got the most amazing and well-documented story I believe I've ever heard in my life. In 1982, Mellon Thomas Benedict died of terminal brain cancer, but yet he survived to tell about it. Mellon Thomas was dead for over an hour and a half, no signs of life, when he reappeared in his body. And if that isn't amazing enough, his terminal cancer was gone. Plus, the knowledge he learned from the other side is just truly astonishing. He's the most documented and studied near-deather in the world, and has taken part in more think tanks than any other person. Since his near-death experience, Mellon has devoted himself to scientific research projects. For our regular listeners, you might recall about a month and a half ago, Suzanne Taylor talking about Mellon Thomas on her segment Outside the Box. We had such an incredible response to it that I asked Susan if she could possibly get him for our show. With Susan being our Hollywood connection, had no problem at all. So right now we have Mellon Thomas Benedict and Suzanne Taylor. So how are you two doing tonight? Well, well good. How can we both talk at once? Yes, you both <laughs> should talk at the same time. <laughs> One more time. I'll wait for Suzanne. <laughs> All right, let me talk first, since I'm the instigator yeah. here. I'm the matchmaker. Sure. So as a semi-regular on your show, John, uh, the crop circle queen over here, uh, that's actually how I met Mellon. I was um, I saw him being the keynoter for a conference in Hawaii. It wasn't that I wanted to go to Hawaii so much, but I did want to meet Mellon. I'd known about him for a long time. And he'd been, actually, I thought he was dead. <laughs> I mean, I thought he was like... Well, according to this, he actually has died. <laughs> well, yeah, but not that time. Because he's so famous, you know? It's like I thought, oh, this must be an old story, because it, I've known it, you know, seemingly forever, and I discover it's actually a 30-year-old story, and Mellon's younger than I am. So, uh, but, but the story is so well-known about Mellon Thomas Benedict's near-death experience. It's, it's, I don't know. I wonder if you could even say it's the classic in the field. But what I did was, one of the things I did prior to meeting Mellon, um, I have this wonderful blog 
called The Conversation. It's theconversation.org. And I did a post about him. And I'm I'm reading you just this one sentence from um, the post. It says, reading his material years ago sensitized me to there being other intelligent life, which helped make me receptive to crop circles being of non-human origin. So part of his story is about the teeming life in the universe, which he discovered after he was so-called dead, which obviously wasn't real dead since he's on this call. (laughs) Uh, But in fact, he played this, I don't even think Mellon knows that. We call him Mellon for short. Uh, I don't think he knows how important his story was to me. Oh, maybe he does because he probably read this uh, post I wrote. In fact, you know, it it was so compelling. It It had such a flavor about it of, oh yeah, about what's beyond what we know. I mean, we have no way to know these things. And please, God, we don't get the opportunity the same way he did because, you know, most of us don't come back. But, I mean, this you'll see in his story, this is not your ordinary near-death experience where people are gone for 10 minutes or something. He, he'll tell you how long, but it was, I mean, he was gone. But he's, he's for real. He's back. And uh, that, you know, that's my little intro. So, Melon, with great admiration and enthusiasm and excitement that you get to share yourself with some people who still don't know this story, although many people do. So over to you for why you are on Paranormal Radio. Well, thank you, Suzanne. Uh, really a great intro there. Yeah, it was excellent. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, where should I begin then? Uh, actually, in the beginning, I'd say in 1982, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I'm uh, my uh, my near death took place in February of 1982, but I I've been diagnosed um, uh, almost a year before that, and uh, I'm someone who came into this experience uh, really pretty clueless and and fairly thick as a brick, and I'm someone who uh, spirituality was not a quest of mine uh, before my near death experience. I was, uh, um, and sometimes I attribute that to being raised in Catholic boarding schools. Forgive me for saying that, but. Uh, but uh, I was someone that um, wasn't uh, wasn't interested in any of this actually, and um, you know I wasn't even an atheist. At least an atheist shows some interest in the subject, you know. And uh, <laughs> they'll argue with You're you so about cute. it. <laughs> and but I it was uh, you know it was no interest to me at all, no, uh, no fascination at all. I'd already made up my mind that there um, that there was no God, and if there was a God, he must be uh, an idiot to make a world like this. That was my opinion. And um, but for me, uh, you know, uh, I um, I developed uh, 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 at that time an incurable and operable uh, brain cancer, and I didn't really know why until I had my um, you know what we call a near death experience. But uh, for me, the uh, the symptoms uh, were building and building, and uh, finally, um, after several, uh, I. I started a period of having blackouts and that really got my attention and I ended up uh, seeing a series of doctors and um, finally ended up in a well-known uh, neurosurgeon's office at the time uh, for uh, testing you know one doctor referring me to the next and um, and the strangest thing happened in his office and uh, this is before I was even tested I, w- I was in his office and um, I was uh, and he had sort of a uh, not only a waiting room but then he would call you into his um, like office that was his office and uh, the first thing I noticed when I went to his office is that uh, big bowl of, uh, of cigarette butts, big ashtray of cigarette butts on his desk. Because back in those days in the South, which where I was uh, pretty much raised, everybody smoked, you know. And um, I went, ooh. 
And then uh, he excused himself for a minute, and um, I uh, was looking around. I looked; he had a win- one window in his office there, and I looked, and there was a uh, round stained glass piece hanging in the window. And uh, for many years, I was a professional stained glass artist, earned my living that way for almost 20 years. And uh, I looked up, and I looked at this piece of stained glass, and criticized it, going, "That is." the worst piece of stained glass I've ever seen. And then suddenly I remembered that piece of stained glass. This man had actually taken one of my courses five years before. And I'm looking at this going, oh, and I started having a flashback memory. And the memory was of him, of, I, I remembered him taking my course and him being a chain smoker and me asking him to step outside, which was almost unheard of in the South in those days. And I remember him smoking the cigarettes and shaking. I remember uh, him doing his stained glass and shaking while he was soldering. And, and then this is a surgeon, Mellon. Yeah, this is <laughs> oh my dear. <laughs> and and, uh, and he, you know he, he always had the shakes and everything. And he did the he was just terrible at stained glass. But and I remember at that time, and this is what the memory got me. I, I as I was flashing back, I remember him, and I remember at the time telling one of my assistants that I hope he's never my doctor. Oh, isn't that life, interesting? I didn't know that be, part of the story. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, so uh, life can be very, very ironic. And, um, you know, on the Internet, and, and, and I'm in over uh, 100 books now, and I just came out in a new book by the Louise Hayes uh, group called uh, Pathways to Peace that just came out. So I'm in a, that's why I'm, I guess I'm so well-known is, although I haven't put out a book myself, I'm in a lot of books. I, I let people Oh, Melon, but your story. story is just, you know, I didn't even begin to whack as enthusiastic as about the content of it and the insight it gives you into the human condition and human life and the whole universe. So, uh, you know, I mean, I don't even know if you know how admired you are out there. So just... Well, you know, for me, uh, my my relationship with the light has been one of um, of a dear friend I can have conversations with. I never thought about being famous with it or anything. And, and really, literally, um, I did... Uh, the light did tell me to go out and tell my story, which I did for a lot of years. But by 1995, I retired, and I didn't say another word. I didn't do anything else about this to 2005 is when I came back. Wow. wow. And uh, and that's because the Internet hit big in that time, and I was already in so many books, and all these authors put up their websites. I started being flooded with what with this new thing called emails. It's that <laughs> snowball effect. Once it starts, it takes on a life of its own. Yeah, and, and what happened was, is, is quite often happens, as we know now on the Internet, it was like my story was being passed around and cut and pasted, and some of these versions I didn't even realize who they were talking about. One of those things where you tell 10 people a story and it changes. Right. So in 2005, I decided to put up my first website called The Real Melon at that time. It was just my story to keep it straight. Mm. That's, that's the only interest I had. But since then, you know, uh, as Suzanne says, I did, really didn't realize that this story had had uh, such legs and such effect on people because I had just not even bothered with it for about 10 years. Maybe that's why I did, why I thought you were no longer with us. I you know I didn't feel your presence at all anywhere. I was very busy because in '95 I I literally stopped um, doing the um, uh, the lectures and the tour things, and I I had always from uh, the first year after my near death experience I I have been a full time inventor and researcher ever since, and that was the gift the light gave to me, which we can talk about later. But you know uh, for me uh, to be uh, so, so I was uh, I was tested and I remember. I remember going back to the doctor for the results, and I remember him looking very serious, and uh, he started talking to me, and he said words like terminal, and suddenly I couldn't understand what he was saying. 
that mm-hmm. didn't register what permit. What does that mean? Because, you, you know, unless it happens to you, 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 you just don't realize some of the doctors looking you in the face and saying, you're terminal. And I just, I almost couldn't understand what he was saying. And then he told me I probably at that time had six to eight months to live. Wow. And, um, but they were going to try to do, a, you know, surgery and aggressive chemo. And I'm just following doctor's orders. So, um, I had to come back for an appointment with the oncologist and um, you get everything booked in or whatever. And I remember being in the exam room alone with the oncologist who, I think he was a man from India. And I, I was listening to him and I said, uh, and I was very hopeful, like, as everyone would be, that, um, that this, was gonna, this was actually going to give me a lot more time. So I asked him, I said, how much time is this, is this going to add to my life? And he, uh, he looked at me very strangely and he closed the door and he said, this, what they're recommending is so aggressive that by about the third round, you'll be a vegetable. Oh, my God. And I said, uh, and that man is why I'm still here, basically, I believe. Thank God, I don't yeah. know. I don't know if this would have happened on an operating table or whatever. I, I, don't, I don't know, but I do know that I looked at him and I said, well, why, you know, why am I going to do this and what can I do? And he said, go home and make your peak. And, um, and that's what I did. I, I didn't get any treatments. I did no surgery. And I didn't go home either because um, I was someone that uh, came from uh, an average dysfunctional family and believed my family didn't love me and was actually disowned by my family because um, I didn't, uh, I refused the draft for the Vietnam War and I came from a military family. And I was disowned, you know, by my, my mother, my brother, my, my father. And so I didn't speak to them for years. I didn't care. And so the idea of going home to die in their house was worse. <laughs> that was looking at worse. It's because I was, you know, messed up my head about uh, my family. But um, so I didn't know what to do because I'm unprepared. Uh, I literally never heard the word hospice till I ended up in one. I, I, I never heard the word near death until I met Phyllis Atwater. And um, I really didn't know much about this at all or had any interest in it. But luckily, through a friend of mine, it was just pure luck because I, I I'd never heard the word hospice till a friend introduced me to a woman and uh, told her that I was terminal, because I'd only told a couple of people that uh, I was terminal and didn't know what to do about it. What do I do? I didn't have much money. I was a self-employed artist. And what do you do? And she introduced me to this lady who uh, offered to um, be my caretaker at a hospice center uh, in the mountain. And um, I thought about it for a couple of weeks and contacted the lady, and uh, it was like seemed the only option. I mean, what can I do? And... So I ended up in a, in a hospice uh, care uh, situation, a, a small place. In, in that period of my uh, deterioration and, and my illness uh, take, taking over my life completely, uh, there was a small library in the book, very small library, little bookcase, really. And it had a bunch of books, and, and it had several books on world religions, you know, a couple of them really fat books. And I did flip through those, and I wanted to kind of, I thought, brush up. You know? <laughs> and I, I did look through those books. I really can't say I read them, but I really did look through them. I looked at odd things like reincarnation. I went, oh, my God, you know. And uh, none of it registered with me. I, I couldn't believe any of it because it, it had to do with God and this whole concept of, of, of God, which I didn't believe in, and or, or God could create a world like, like what we live in. And... Uh, I deteriorated. I I succumbed to my disease. I had a written will, and I um, I in my written will I wanted them to make 
sure I was dead when they thought I was dead. They were supposed to leave my body alone for uh, six hours or more. I actually wanted three days to really make sure I was really dead. <laughs> and uh, because I, I just didn't want to be on tubes or anything, and I, my parents right. didn't know about this. I didn't want my parents notified until afterwards because uh, I had the kind of mother that <laughs> would never let go. I'd still be on tube if she got a hold of me. But um, so in, in that, I was, in a, I, I was the kind of the worst person for hospice. I was very negative, very angry. I, I would even have, I would even curse out loud a God I didn't believe in. Hmm. And I blamed everybody. I blamed my parents. I, you know, you go through these, you go through this uh, emotions and blame everybody, blame the world. And, uh, you know, it's, it just was, a, just was a, a terribly dark experience for me. I was not a happy camper in hospice. And the other thing that made it strange is when I, when I got to the hospice center, my, my, I call her my angel who, who took care of me, Mm-hmm. Uh, who got me up there turned out to be a Christian, and I that really kind of unnerved me. And uh, she she wasn't a preachy Christian, she wasn't a hypocritical one. She was a I, I think a genuine person. And as things got progressed, she would occasionally ask me to pray, to learn how to pray, and to pray, and that would just make me angry. Hmm. And I'd get angry at her. So imagine that she's she's trying to help me, and here yeah, I am. Right. You know, just well, you, you were mad at that whole situation. You were mad at God. Yeah. And uh, I remember there was uh, there was one uh, one time in which um, you know she believed things were getting very close, and I was very very weak. And uh, she literally begged me to pray for my soul, and I got so angry at her that I literally pulled whatever energy I had together, put on some a little bit of clothes and a coat, and stormed out of the place. And it was kind of a slow storm, <laughs> but. Uh, I stormed out of the place in this great anger, fit of anger, and I got to the end of the sidewalk, and I looked, and I stopped, and I said, where are you going? This is the end of the road. <laughs> where do you think you're going? And to this day, turning around and walking back to that door is the longest walk I've ever taken. And when I got back to that door, I just touched it, and she was there, took me back in, and uh, she never asked me to pray again, though. And... Um, <laughs> And, uh, but, you have a good uh, audience but, here. <laughs> yeah, and, great story. Uh, but uh, but uh, you know, I did I did succumb to my disease. I and you know, like I said, I had a written will and and uh, all of that. I'd, I'd actually taken a day trip early on in, in that experience with the hospice to the um, to the actual morgue. I actually saw the uh, limo, and mm-hmm. I, and I, I had a thought at that time. I said, "Yeah, I've never been in a limo. This is going to be my first and last." <laughs> what a time to enjoy your ride, huh? <laughs> have thoughts like this. And um, I was someone who literally, literally believed the world was going to end in our lifetime, not for religious reasons or anything like that. I had been an ecologist type person. And uh, I was someone who uh, got, um, uh, remember, uh, uh, what was it, Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring? Sure. And, um, and, and at that time, you know, ecology was becoming big. And, all the, and at that time, all the experts were saying, if humanity stopped what it was doing right then, it was still too late. We would still overpopulate, over, overgraze, and, and probably destroy the ecology of the world. And on top of that, you know, this is, um, uh, I was raised in the, in the peak of the Cold War, so I remember bomb shelters. You know, and if you didn't have one, you felt really left out. Um, and uh, so we could, uh, you know, and at that time, in the, the peak of the Cold War, um, 
and we only had the Russians to worry about then, uh, you know, the experts were saying that we could blow up the world 500 times. And, and the thing that really got me was that the smartest minds of our time, our government officials and thinkers, the smartest plan they came up with, and people may, my age may remember this, was called Mutual Assured Destruction. It was called MAD. Yeah, I remember, right. Remember that? I do, yeah. That was their plan. Insane. The brightest That's minds insane. of our time. You know? Uh, so that, you know, is a very, uh, and I, I took all that to heart. And really, um, and, and early early in my uh, life, you know, in my uh, late teens and 20s, I'd already lost complete faith in humanity. I had no faith in a god or anything, but I, I lost all my faith in humanity. And what really uh, got me, and I saw this in my life review, which I'll talk about in a minute, but what, what, what really got me, what was the seed of my disease, that I never understood till uh, the, the day I died, was that I saw a photograph. And some people say, you know, it's a straw that breaks a camel's back. For me, it was a photograph that killed me. And that photograph is still floating around by well-meaning people. But the photograph is a is a is a aerial photograph of the city of Los Angeles, and right next to it is a micro photograph of a cancer cell, and they look almost exact. Oh, wow. And, you know what's interesting, and, Mellon? You know, um, I think that the prevailing belief of most people would be uh, in the face of, you know, impending doom or death or whatever, would be to really uh, try to be good and bargain with God and, you know, be spiritual and tune in to the beauty and the whatever in hopes that, you know, that kind of positivity would uh, would save you. And how interesting that, you know, here you are just at the opposite end of the spectrum, misanthropic, hating humanity. And look, look, <laughs> you know, I just think that's part of this. That's a kind of an interesting lesson. I don't quite know what conclusion and, to make and it is. beyond and that. It really is. Um, and, and, and I had this, and, and I saw this in my life review, the seed of my disease was as I looked at this photograph and I got it, I believed it, I had a thought in my heart of hearts, and that thought was that nature had gone wrong and created a malignant cancer on planet Earth called humanity. Hmm. And guess what? My worldview was based on that, humanity being a cancer, and that was what was in the deep core of my thinking, subconscious, and I developed brain cancer. Interesting, huh? Yeah, that too. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but for me, um, uh, just a little bit about the, the, the actual, you know, experience. I literally uh, woke up one morning, I think it was around sunrise, it was very early, and I had this clear feeling. I, I felt absolutely clear. I had this clear feeling that I was going to be, I was going to be, I was going to die soon. It was, a, it was the same feeling that soldiers know, mothers know about their children. It was that kind of a feeling. It was a knowing. Uh-huh. And um, I, uh, I had a, a conversation, um, you know, uh, with my uh, caretaker. I got her up, and uh, but it was that. Uh, it was actually that morning that I died because they, they, no, they normally didn't bother me till after ten or after because I was very weak at that time and uh, uh, pretty much living on milk and. Uh, so when they did come in to check me, uh, I was already cold. They they believed I was already dead. But we we had they had um, amplified stethoscope and other things, and they started monitoring me. And they monitored me for uh, uh, maybe a little over an hour and a half. But I probably died before that with no vital signs. And at that at that point, they were con- 
convinced. But I like to tell people that, you know, being dead or being without vital signs for an hour and a half in near-death records is no record at all. There, there are documented cases of people being dead or without vital signs for much longer than that, even. Oh, oh really? I didn't know that. I, did, I thought I you didn't had know that some either. kind of record on that. No, no, that's not a record. Um, uh, P.M.H. Atwater, who's the great writer and researcher in the field, who eventually discovered me in the backwaters uh, of the South, but um, she's a great writer, and she uh, has written about the history of these things. She can tell and has written about story after story. There was uh, George Rodinaya, who's a very famous near-deather, was literally uh, documented being dead for over three days. Come on. For three oh, really? days? Read his story. Read his story. Oh, he my was God. Who was who was shot on the street on a Friday or something. They got into the morgue, put a tag on his toe, pronounced him dead, put him in the, put him in the icebox, and went home. And when they came back sometime on Monday or so, it started the autopsy. Oh, my <laughs> he God. Popped back in his body. He popped back in his body. And he was, he was uh, by, by a number of doctors there, was pronounced dead, I don't, you know, DOA, dead on arrival. So, Boy, that uh, would discourage everybody from letting anybody do, do you. <laughs> Oh my God! <laughs> Until oh. a long time. Yeah, and and what's amazing in the current research in medicine, and there are many books written on this now, is that we're we're redefining what death is. We we actually really don't know what death actually is. So there's uh, there may be an in between state. We're not sure. Uh, they you know they've just recently in research found out they could communicate with people that have been in total comas with using uh, uh, I think brainwave machines they can actually get yes or nos and actually start talking to people Whoa. who are in total coma. Wow. So all all these parameters are changing. But um, but uh, my caretaker said you know you were you were already uh, you were you were already getting stiff and and if you've ever been around um, a dead person a dead person looks dead <laughs> their skin changes you know. Yeah, you know, I noticed when I was with my dad when he died, and I noticed something that I've never seen in the movies or expected or whatever, but I could see something leave his body, a plasma or whatever you call it, and his whole body collapsed out. You know, it was laying, laying down, uh, but, but you know, there was... It was. It was just. I could see that was a dead body after that. But I also saw this thing leave his body. Just a little aside from your story here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like uh, you know. It's very different than being passed out or unconscious. And, oh yeah. Uh, just a footnote there, uh, Suzanne. In uh, we now know what that is. That 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 flash you saw, or what some people report as a light leaving the body when someone's mm -hmm. dead. Mm -hmm. That's been scientifically proven now. That's called biophotons. Oh, I never hear anybody uh, say anything. I just know that I uh, saw that. Yeah, and so it's it's literally true. You can photograph this now. They've actually you can actually weigh photons, and they've actually weighed this amount of energy. When uh, our bodies really live at the nuclear level, you know, we are an atomic structure first, and um, our biology is a nuclear biology. And uh, when atoms exchange energy and communicate, they give off a, a photon called a biophoton, just like those fish uh, deep in the bottom of the ocean. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just like when you look at humans at night with a, a night vision camera, they're glowing. We are literally glowing. We're a nuclear ah. furnace that glows, and mm -hmm. we release these, this, these waves of light. And they've discovered that when you die and the cells die, uh, that your body releases the biophotons, release the energy, and that oh, release can last up to about three days. And some uh -oh. people, like yourself, Suzanne, can actually see this happen. Yeah, and then yeah. and then as I say, also, it was so clear that that was an empty bag lay, lying mm -hmm. on the table there. 
uh, it, not tables in a bed, but, but he was empty. You know, it, it was different from the moment after that uh, experience where that light left. And you never see yeah. that in the movies. All those bodies look like, you know, they just close their eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know how you real, can do it in the real. movies since, you know, it's yeah. quite a... Hey, Melon, I got a, one little quick question. You were gone for an hour and a half. Did your body start to, I mean, were you turning gray and everything? Like a normal? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, my, my caretaker and um, the other person that was there was saying, you know, you were getting stiff. Uh, you were already <laughs> that way when we came in the room, by the way. I got You were already in that state because I, I could have been uh, dead or without vital signs for a couple hours even before that. So this is, instead of a near-death experience, this is more like a complete death and a resurrection. That's what yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> Well, oh yeah, my gosh! I'm uh, going to have to bow down to you. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> and, and to my, you know, uh, the funny thing is, is that I died and lived to tell about it. Yeah, I know. I I love that tagline. Actually, <laughs> it's uh, it's a complete surprise to me. But but the um, the experience for me that uh, um, I've often said uh, now seems like it took one second, but it's taken me 30 years to tell the story. You know, uh, for me. Um, my my experience, and this is this is before I think near death was really big or popular as it is today. Um, uh, I I literally uh, went back to sleep, and the next thing I know in my experience is I'm standing outside of my body, and like Suzanne said, I'm looking at my body, and there's like light or something leaving my body, wow. and waves of this uh, light energy and leaving my body, totally confused, didn't, uh, and it was more vivid than a dream and uh, very confusing and um, surrounded in, in darkness, but could see my body. And um, I, you know, uh, totally confused about the whole thing. And uh, then, for me, uh, what we now call a life review, and my life review began as uh, almost ticking back from the moment of my death all the way back to in my mother's womb. Wow. I got to see the whole story. And there were, um, and it was all around me, and like, um, little movie panes and windows around me and uh, I could see my life and I'm someone who uh, had not <laughs> had not done any processing in my life at all. I, I thought I had it together. You know, <laughs> I thought I knew all about it. And for me to see um, my life from that other view and, to, and you, you, you feel it, you see it, and you also see how people have affected you and how you have affected other people and that we're all connected and uh, very connected. Even people you hate, you're connected to. But um, at, but my life, I realized, uh, had been a sad life because my life review, one of the most important things that revealed to me, especially uh, in, 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 the, in, in the review of my pattern of life, was I was someone who came from uh, a, a dysfunctional family, and uh, none of us knew about love. I, I had no skills. For loving, I didn't know. I, I realized in that re- life review, I didn't know what love was, and so I'm someone who had lived my life up to that point. I used to say that love was a mental illness; you know, <laughs> had all the symptoms of it, and uh, uh, I didn't believe in love. Although, uh, you know, I had girlfriends and I had relationships, but in my heart of heart, I never believed in that love was real and that you know people were faking it and stuff like that, or or, cra- or you know delusional and or foolish. And to see for the first time that love did exist and that so many people had tried to love me hmm. and I didn't get it. I wow. couldn't see it. I couldn't feel it. I couldn't receive it. And that was very sad, very wow. sad. And this was the inner core of my life I was looking at. You know, um, 
people that I say, you know, have the happy genes. They're just so born happy. I love those people, but they weren't any of those in my family. And uh, and I also got to see that I always believed my parents didn't love me. And uh, I could see that my parents loved me a lot in their way, and they but they couldn't show it. They never showed it, really. And... Um, and also, they had not been loved, because I could see some of their memories. And I could see that they had come from families where there had not been that uh, sharing of love or, 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 um, or uh, you know, a show of love. And I could see, you know, birds of a feather flock together. I started seeing uh, groups of people and vibrations, you know, tend to hang out together. And my life review kept ticking back and back, and it was just a very sad and lonely experience for me. I was like the loneliest person in the world. And then, and then, I at, at then I went into an experience. I could see all sorts of things about my my parents and stories. And and years later, when I did tell my parents a story and made up with my parents, I told my mother some stories, and she said, uh, "You, you, that's impossible because." You uh, you weren't even born, and I've never. No one's ever told you those stories. Wow. How do you know these stories? You know, it, it surprised her. And what really surprised her was is the stories I could tell her of when I was in her womb of what was oh, going my. on in her life. Because I can tell you now from experiencing it in this review that fetuses are completely conscious, wow. and they're wired to the mother's nervous system, the mother's uh, um, uh, uh, hormone system, and it is a powerful experience to uh, be in your mother's womb. And, and that's why people should be so careful with that part of coming into the world. Because for me, my parents argued all the time. And my father, my biological father, was a really mean, drunk alcoholic. Mm. Uh, a very smart man, but when he drank, he got crazy. And... Um, um, when I was in my mother's womb, they would be having fights, and I'm the baby in the middle of it. And when and he would beat her, and whenever he beat her, I would feel every. I could feel my mother's fear. I could. I learned the fear of death before I was ever born. Mm-hmm. Oh my and, God, Ellen, I want to ask you a question. Do you do, do you have any sense of when that consciousness, in terms of, um, you know, the arguments about abortion? Uh, of when the fetus becomes a conscious creature that you would really be harming by having an abortion? I don't think there is an exact moment. Uh, there's not an actual exact moment. There is consciousness even in a grain of sand, so there's got to be consciousness in a, in a single-cell sperm and in, in the mm-hmm. cells. But this accumulates and becomes a being, and that is formed by the environment you're in also and and we'll get into reincarnation later because i learned a lot about that mm. but but in my mother's belly my world view was set before i was ever born and i realized i just didn't get this you know after i was born my world view was set before i was born and my world view was that this was a scary place that men were very dangerous and this was going to be a lot of pain Oh and I know, I, I now know from my many visits with the light that this is what uh, sudden infant death is about, crib deaths, you know. And you're born into this world, and you don't want to be here. You, wow. you just want to leave. Oh, my God. Wow. Have they done any now, studies studies about that, about sudden in, uh, crib death and, and, and the nature of the families that the kids come from? I'm not sure, but I've talked about it 
for, for so many years now, I, I talk about it and try to get people to think about it. I've had many healthcare professionals, nurses, and caretakers come to me and tell me I was right. They knew this was right. I've had uh-huh. many people agree with me that they right. know this from their own experience. So, um, so you know, um, um, so and then suddenly uh, when, when all that ended, everything became super dark and I was alone. And I had the thought that this is it, this is how it ends. You you end in some um you, you end in some blackness. And, and and that was really fearful. You know, like, this is this is it. This is what I thought. And um a very scary, very lonely feeling. All my issues were super amplified at that time. You know, oh every God. issue I had, you know, abandonment, betrayal, all that was amplified to, to be almost a, a terrible experience. And I didn't know what to do. I, I had no idea what to do. And I thought this is it. And I did, you know, you know, I, I, I pondered, you know, because in Catholic boarding school, we were very, very often, almost every other day, told you we're going to go to hell for eternity for anything from not polishing your shoes to you know, right. bedwetting. I, I thought, is this eternity? Is this what they were talking about? Is this and, the experience uh, you're having after your death experience or before you're speaking about? This is when my life review ended. Oh, this is you're on the other side now. You're you're dead. Yeah. I, yeah, and you're having, and, and it's dark and bleak. Okay. And also, I, I had no vision of, I didn't believe in heaven or hell. I didn't mm-hmm. believe in any of that. Uh, no, no real interest in it. I didn't believe any of that. And so I was I was in this, this place that was a horrible, lonely place, stuck yeah. with all my, stuck with me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, my God. All my, all my issues. That had to and be then, terrifying, actually. Just to sit, that'd be like yeah. being in a black closet, just nothing yeah. and and i i later wrote about that and i called it i called that moment because for me it felt like a black hole and i i've written about this and i've called that moment the total gravitational collapse of a human soul wow i i had i collapsed into a black hole that was mm-hmm. endless that was infinity to me and uh i had no idea what to do uh every emotion was at its super amplified and at some point, because uh, it seemed I was there, it seemed to me like a long time, like it was <laughs> never going to end. And at some point, to my amazement, a type of angel appeared to me. And I didn't believe in angels. I, I thought angels were figurines at best, you know, that you see at Christmas and whatever with a candle in And in <laughs> fact, this, this uh, version of an angel appeared to me as a golden figurine, because that's what I had in my head. You know, that's, that was my image. And I have to tell people that your experience uh, when you cross over is going to be totally unique to you. Uh, even if you're a diehard Christian or Muslim or anything, or whatever diehard you are, you will still have an individual experience that will reflect what you, how you see the world in many ways. And so uh, it was a golden angel, like a figurine, and I just blurted the, the thought, blurted out of me, are you the angel of death? Hmm. <laughs> and... At, at that moment, the angel said, I have been, I've been here with you from the beginning of time. And uh. I can tell you now that that represented, because I can tell you all the deeper things now, I've had so many visit, visitations with the light over the years, that that was actually my higher self. That was my, uh, my, my, my uh, higher self or, or supernature, you know, your superconscious. That's um, always and, with you. Mm-hmm, always. Uh, yeah. Forever. You know, before yeah. time, in fact, and and um, uh, I begged, I begged uh, this angel, "How do I get out of here? What I do? I'll do anything. I don't, you know, let's, you know, how do we end this?" And um, the the angel said to me, 
the only way is to love your life. Hmm. And I went, you know, like, are you crazy? Love <laughs> my life? You know, I, I, I just, that was a, I, I couldn't even begin to understand what that meant. And, um, and then with that, uh, there was like a, um, a lesson was going to begin. And that's when the uh, angel kind of pointed to my heart, because you still have sort of a body. It's interesting. It's hard to explain, but wow. pointed to what, where, where would be my heart. And there was a little light there that I never saw. And the angel said, that light leads to another light. Follow it. And I can tell you that that light that people talk about at the end of the tunnel begins in your heart. Mm. And you're always connected to it, and you can never be disconnected, no matter what you've done, no matter what happens to you, no matter what voodoo doctor does anything <laughs> to you. You cannot be disconnected. You can, you can forget it. You cannot be aware of it. But it, You can never be separated from the source of, of where everything comes from. And with that, the experience was one that many near-deathers reported. It wasn't quite like a tunnel. It was um, the light sort of streamed, and this light had a quality that I noticed because um, everything started moving, and the light had a quality of coming and going at the same time. And uh, um, it was this very interesting uh, physics that I understand now about light but the light was coming and going at the same time. And I sort of noticed energy coming and going from it. And uh, I had asked the angel, what is this? And the angel said, uh, there are a lot of souls going to the light today, and there are a lot of souls coming from the light today. And I just happened to be in the group that was going. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that was the exit group. And uh, of people dying at that moment that day, or, or you know, in, in that time span. And... Um, but when I did get to the light, what we call the light now, um, uh, and we may have to have more talks about this because now I know all the details because I've had so many visitations with the light for clarification. I can explain the quantum physics of it, in fact. But when I got to that light, being really clueless, <clears throat> it, uh, the first feeling I had was not one of, eu of euphoria, of, um, you know, like some near-deathers talk, but it was one of just, I don't know, I don't know uh, what is this, and I'm uh, so I'm with this light, and the, the and the light isn't saying anything. And I I said, you know, I guess like any good atheist would or somebody. Uh, the first thing I could think of was, are you God? You know, um, and then the, my second thought was, <laughs> if you are God, I'm in a lot of trouble. <laughs> and, uh oh, uh, been denying yeah, all those uh, years. I'm going to be spanked, but. Uh, <laughs> But and that was kind of the emotions going through, and uh, I, w I want people to know that this light, this source, knows you intimately. I mean, so intimately, like no one uh, on earth could know you, and it speaks to you no matter what level you're at, no matter what religion, no matter what dogma, no matter what level you're at, the light speaks to you like you've never heard before, and it speaks to you so you will understand and that is unique, I believe, for everyone that has this experience. And so for me, when I asked the question, are you God, the light said to me, who and what is not God? Mm. And for me, that was the perfect answer, because for me, it meant that if I tried to tell you who and what God, what we call God, which is a very loose word, is, 
I would have to name every single thing in the entire universe, and that would take forever. So for me, the perfect answer was who and what is not God. You know, mm. look at this differently. And it wasn't a religious thing at all. Um, I, I can, I can, uh, and, and so at that moment, with the light talking to me, I felt like I was with someone. Uh, I, I, you know, and at that moment, um, I, I, I had this, I had the feeling the intellectual feeling that this is an interactive experience. This light is talking to me. It's not something I'm going to be hit with or, or whatever. This light is communicating. And so nervously, you know, I said, uh, can we hold on here a minute? <laughs> I didn't know what was next. <laughs> you know, can we hold on a minute here? And the light, the light pretty much uh, gave me the feeling of yes. And wow. There's no rush. There's no rush at all. And then, you know, I, I said, I, I have so many questions. And that began what is now known as my story of my near death. The, all the questions I had, so many questions to ask uh, the light. And the very first question, of course, was because I had died of brain cancer and thinking humanity was like the most god awful thing ever that nature had ever created. <laughs> my first, my first question was, why mankind? Why this creation? Why bother? with creating anything like this why why is this even in, why is this pestilence in the universe it's so dark and doomed and dangerous and at that moment the light turned into what i what we call now what i now know is a, what they call a mandala you know uh and that for people who don't know what a mandala is is sort of the, look at crop circles you know what mandalas are yeah, and 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 in in some ways similar to one of those great cathedral round stained glass windows with all the panes in them, the light turned into this mandala, and it was almost like it breathed me into the center of this thing, which I call the mandala of human souls. That's what I call it, and it seemed like when I was in that 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 space or vibration that. I could see into every human soul. It was, it's hard to explain, but I could see, and I could also see into mine. And I could see no darkness at all, ever. Uh-huh. And this stunned me, because I had a completely different opinion, but I could see into the core essence. And there was no darkness, there never has been, and there never will be in, in that essence, in our core source essence. Uh, and it is, by the way, the saving grace of everything—that core essence—and it's in. Yeah, what a relief, actually, to discover that. And and when I was there, get, you know, going, I can't. There's no darkness. You know, I, I, you know, I was, and I was understanding it because you're in a position, in a vibration where, you, where it, it, it is being explained to you in, in a lot of nonverbal ways too, and then. I heard the light or the voice of this of this mandala say to me, Oh, beautiful human. Oh, beautiful human. And I was stunned that we are loved. Mm. That the entire universe, everything on earth loves us. It really does. Mm. And uh, so... Um, so then I had a lot more questions, and uh, I, uh, I, you know, I, I, I had so many questions on every level, and a very curious person, and uh, a bit scientific. I've always liked science, so a lot of my, my questions were about science, and there was just no rush. It was like I was not going anywhere. I didn't think about going anywhere, uh, uh, had no agenda, 
and the light would the light and I would just have we were having this conversation about everything I could think of and it was everything. And you know, subject crossed my mind like, Oh yeah, what is reincarnation? Is that really real? And it and this is probably another show, but I I do a whole whole workshops on just that one. But uh the light explained to me that what we call reincarnation is more real than anyone on earth even suspects it is. Uh, and it's much more, forgive me for saying this to some people out there, but it's much more real than the spiritual people even imagine. The spiritual explanations of reincarnation are rather flimsy. But I, but if you add it all together, the quantum physics of it and all of it is more real, it's more real than you imagine. Mm-hmm. And I was shown that in our future, this is a science, it's a real science. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's so much you can do with this once you understand it, and that there are so many levels of reincarnation. That's why the spiritual notion that you know just humans and stuff reincarnate, and they, if you're bad, you come back as a dog or something like that. <laughs> but um, but that the entire universe, I was shown the entire universe and everything in it reincarnates instantly. I mean, uh, you know, um, um, it uh, reincarnates forever, and. Uh, an example is when a star dies, it creates new stars. It creates new worlds. Uh, stars reincarnate. Uh, all matter, uh, all what we call spirit, everything reincarnates. And, some, and humans reincarnate in a number of ways, not just the light body. Uh, I was shown that your children you have are biological reincarnations of you. They are made from you. They are of you. They are the next issue of you, and uh, and it goes on and on. It's it's like a whole thing we could talk about. And and I I was shown this. Uh, you know, I wanted to see the science of these things, and I was shown how that works. And that's when I uh, learned about the the light in our bodies and all of that. And I had so many questions. Uh, you know, questions of war and all these things. And I was I was all of these questions were answered to my satisfaction. And um, uh, at one point, uh, because this was like a timeless experience, at one point I sort of ran out of questions. I had no more questions. To, I had the feeling that all of my questions I could even imagine have been answered to my satisfaction. And, and by that I mean I don't know everything. I'm not interested in everything. But everything I was interested in and every question I had because we all have different sets of questions for the universe. We all have different sets of questions. There's so many things I'm not even interested in. Um, and But what I was interested in was answered perfectly for me so I could understand it. And then, um, so I came to that moment in which I had no more questions. And uh, it was like my mind was silent and it was silent. And then the light said to me, but what was your first question? <laughs> and... Because you understand what the light's telling you, I instantly understood what the light meant by what is your first question, what was your first question. What, that, what, what the light meant was that all of us, at some point when we're very young, have our first sort of serious question about the world or the universe around us. And it could be as simple as, why is the sky blue? You know what I mean? Yes. We all have a first question. And the light reminded me that I had forgotten my first question. And for me, oddly enough, and I and I attribute this to being raised in Catholic boarding schools and thinking of eternity and all this stuff <laughs> when I was young, um, because when I was that young, I mean, we're talking, you know, 
certainly by the fourth grade, I was having these thoughts, um, uh, uh, not about God or anything, but I had, I, and I guess it's because, you know, we were always told we were going to die and all this stuff was going to happen to us. I used to think endlessly about why do we grow old and die? Mm. And that was my first serious question. And I used to ask everybody that, the priests, the nuns, my dad, anybody that was a doctor. I asked that question until I got way into high school and thought, and at one point thought I was going to be a doctor to study all this. Um, and um, so when the light reminded me, what was your first question? I said, oh, yeah, why do we grow old and die? Hmm. <laughs> and at that moment, two columns of light came out of this light, one on my right, one on my left. And on the column of the right, a little man came out of it. What, what, the image of a little man. He looked, uh, he, he looked short. He looked kind of Asian. And um, I later found out who that was. And I heard the word, uh, I heard the word Dinshaw. And this man, this little man, who it turned out to be uh, Garadelli Dinshaw, the great healer of light in the 20th century. He's actually a historical figure. Who, who made some of the, the greatest advances in healing with colors of light back in the 20s and stuff, um, he started educating me about everything he knew, color, all of that, and, and healing people, and that light was one of the secrets to long life and, uh, and health, and that we're made of light, we come from the light, we, we're all about light, the food we eat is about light, and this later led me into the field I'm in now, which is quantum biology. You know, it's a leading field in biology, in my, in my uh, uh, opinion today. And the field of quantum biology is one in which you, you look at your atoms as your biology also. It's beyond molecular biology. And when he finished downloading all this information to me, the column on my left, uh, a man stepped out of that one. And it was a short, portly man with a beret and a really funny mustache, and uh, uh, started educating me about starlight and electrons and electron transport, and drawing me, he was uh, drawing all this in front of me, like in midair, and what he was drawing, I, I found out later, he was drawing fractal geometry and educating me using fractal geometry, wow. and it looked like, it looked psychedelic, you know? And if you look at uh, fractal geometry images today, who can only be produced by supercomputers, they look psychedelic. And he was explaining that this, because fractal geometry was actually invented back in the 1800s, I found out, but no one could really produce these images till supercomputers came along. He was hand-drawing these. Mm. And he was explaining to me that the study of fractal geometry was the study of order and chaos and the boundaries thereof, and that there is nothing new, and yet everything's always new. All these mystical concepts were explained by this fractal geometry. And, and he was explaining to me about starlight and electrons are the life essence of the entire universe, that everything that has life lives on electrons, which is starlight. And, uh, uh, and giving me wavelengths and formulas, which were like, you know, indelibly written in my mind and downloading all this information because I'd asked that question. And uh, when he was finished, uh, I went into a different experience with the light, but it was later after I met uh, P.M.H. Atwater that I was telling her about this guy, and I described him. She says, I know who he is. That's Walter Russell of the University of Light. He was a real guy. 
And then I took a trip with her to Charleston, uh, uh, to Charlottesville, West Virginia, where the where the University of Light is. This was a real guy, and it turns out he was he was trying to explain fractal geometry to people as an artist back before computers. I mean, this goes way back to like the 30s, and. He, he was the first to really start drawing fractal images and paintings. And he also uh, created the University of Light. And his whole thing was about starlight and the essence of life. I didn't, you know, I, I, it was amazing uh, for me to take that, that uh, trip with uh, uh, P. Mage Atwater. And so um, that was all downloaded um, you know, into me. And, um, and, and I... All my questions have been answered, and, and as, as, you, as you can read in, in my stories, if you want to read the kind of the, the more expanded versions on the websites or whatever, is that I did at one point, uh, when I was in my question and answer phase with the light, I did ask to see the rest of the universe, and man, I was, that's why it's called Journey Through the Light and Back. I was popped beyond the light. I guess. And um, really got to see anything I wanted to see. And, you know, back then... I thought I was traveling somewhere, but I now know that it was my consciousness that was expanding. I, I didn't have to go anywhere. Just your consciousness has to expand. I, I wasn't actually physically going anywhere, but your consciousness can go anywhere in the universe. And uh, so, so that's uh, all, you know, so some of the uh, details, interesting things I saw then, because when I came back from my uh, near-death experience, I made, in, in the two years after that, uh, I made eight uh, ast- uh, cosmological astronomical predictions that have all come true now, long before they were invented by even Stephen Hawking. And wow. this was, thank God, this was documented because I gave talks about it. And these have been recorded, like like dark matter and imaging dark matter. I used to talk about all this stuff, and long before you know, uh, uh, it was actually uh, discovered, and uh, and you know, and became part of uh, real science that we know today, but. But when my question, when all this, and, and I felt completely satisfied and was ready to go, and where, wherever, you, where, wherever we're wherever, going now, yeah, wherever you're I'm going, ready to, I'm, I'm ready to go. And uh, but I had been reincarnation had been explained to me, and I knew, I just knew that I would be reincarnating, and I was ready for that. And as I got ready for that, my, I seemed to get heavier and heavier, and this was. Uh, uh, energy gathering for me to fall back to earth, so to speak. Mm. And I was getting heavier and heavier. And I asked the light, I said, can, can I take anything back with me? The light said, take whatever you want. Uh-huh. And, um, and then I was shown the Akasic records, what we call the Akasic records. There are many, many names for it. But in the Akasic records where, you know, universal knowledge is, it's everything. It's unbiased. There's the good, the bad, the ugly, the scary, the magnificent. Everything is there. And um, I saw things that I don't even want to talk about that um, that could be made or invented. I saw all sorts of things, you know. And uh, um, and it's all there. Inspiration, great ideas, the worst ideas in the world are there. <laughs> all of that. And um, but because I I, I had this knowledge now. I I didn't want to come back into my next life to pollute the earth, and so um, so then I was reminded that um, uh, that that whole thought of love your life came back to me, and so 
I prayed not to, I knew I'd be reincarnating, and I didn't want to use any of this to make the world a worse place. And so as, I, as, my, as my energy got heavier and heavier, and I started sinking away from the light, um, I prayed the prayer, I love my life. And mm. that's, all I, that's all I prayed, was I love my life. And then mm-hmm. uh, the next thing I know is, uh, and I thought I was, you know, at, at some point going to start a new incarnation and uh, was ready for that. So at that, uh, so the next thing I remember is I'm on the floor in my room in the same body and I'm semi-conscious and my caretaker's over me just weeping. She's like freaked out. And uh, she's, it just really, really unnerved her completely. And, that you were uh, coming, that you were back or that you were gone? I was back. That I was back. Oh, she saw <laughs> that you were back, right? Yeah, because because they you know they were they were um, they were ready to you know send me off in my limo ride. You know? <laughs> but they knew they knew to give you six hours, yeah. Well, I I asked for that. I really asked for more. But but you know they were they, they were in the other room. And she she said she uh, later she said she'd heard a sound in the room and came in and I was laying on the floor. And I believe that's when I kind of popped back in my body and maybe tried to get up and fell mm-hmm. to the floor. And uh, she said uh, I came in. And you're on the floor, and your lips are moving. She said, "I put, I put my I put my ear to your lips, and you were saying I love my life." <laughs> wow. So when she left, she left you dead. And then how long was it before she heard the sudden came back? They they estimate an hour and a half or so. Oh, that was the hour and a half. Okay. Yeah. And they didn't know how yeah, long, so. when they found you dead, how long right, you'd been yeah. dead, right? Yeah. And, and yeah, you wonder so. why she was shocked when she uh, heard, heard you make a noise. Come on, think about really? it. And, uh, and for me, the next uh, the next several days, almost a week, was very bizarre because I was so super sensitive. I really didn't know if I was here or there. Mm. I, was, I couldn't tell the difference. And wow. so... We we had this weird conversation where she would walk by me like almost like a, a ghost, and I would say, uh, "Am I alive? Am I alive?" And she would say, "You were dead. You were dead. I know you were dead." And that oh, was a, kind of a strange conversation. But um, I did I did uh, I later on you know I I I didn't know if I was well or not, but I did start recovering. And uh, at some point, a doctor said, "You know, he's, he's got to get checked out, and he's you know." He shouldn't be in hospice anymore, but I had this—I had this feeling that some near-deathers get, that almost a depression. And for me, it was the thought that I had had this experience, and I'd seen all these things, and the universe had put me right back in the same body the moment I left off. I thought I was going to get a whole fresh new start. I, I had the feeling like I'd just been burned. Okay. You know, this, 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 well, you and just died of, of terminal brain cancer, too, right? Didn't you? Yeah, and, and I didn't know. I, and I, at that point, I um, didn't know if I was cured or not and assumed that because I was put right in the body at the, right about the same moment that I left, pretty much, that I probably still had cancer, too. That was my thought. Yeah, of course. And, uh, but um, I didn't want to be tested, and finally... Um, um, the uh, doctor that, that uh, would come to this, uh, this uh, hospice uh, house would said, "Listen, if you're not going to be tested, then you got to go home." And I advise you get tested when you go home. And um, so I did. Um, I did one of the. Uh, I think the the uh, bravest things I ever did was because one of the things the light explained to me on the other side that the greatest karma you're going to have is your family. 
That's the big K. And that you should, re- and that you don't have to reincarnate with them, but you've got to end the, you've got to end the karma with them. And that's through forgiveness and 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 literally, uh, to end karma is you must forgive and forget. And the forget part means that in many many cases you you can forgive. They may never forgive you or, or even understand what you're talking about, but you must forgive them, and that's how you let go. And then. The follow-up to that is the forget means don't hang out with them anymore. Don't stay with them. You know, don't be there anymore. You don't have to be stuck with these people. You don't have to put up with this stuff. And that's what the end of karma is about, in my understanding. But it's I so valuable, home. you know, to hear these things uh, for all yeah. of us, you know. Yeah. Greater insight than, than, than we get house. in... Pardon me? Oh, uh, I said I, 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 I went to my hometown and moved into my parents' house, which was the next two or three years was very interesting. Hmm, sure. What was <laughs> but, their feeling on this? Did they believe that this all well, had happened to you, or did they think you were just I didn't, nuts? I didn't, push it, I didn't push it on them. Uh, uh, what what, what uh, local people that knew me, the story was that I'd given them, there's only about three people that knew I was sick, was that I was moving my stained glass studio to the mountains and leaving town. Because I literally, you know, um, packed up my studio and put it in storage and all that, and it was it was there. But um, uh, so um, it was only only in that I didn't tell my parents about it till well into the experience, where I could begin talking to them. And that's a whole interesting story how how that. But my, my my parents were they weren't that religious themselves at all, not churchgoers or anything. But um, um, when I did try to tell my father at one point, he said, are you a reborn Christian? And I said, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, then I would tell mother, my mother those stories and said, that's impossible. You weren't even born or, or you know, that. Uh, and my mother was someone that when she did leave my father finally, um, uh, when I was in about the fifth grade or so, when she did leave him, she was one of those mothers who never talked bad about him. So I never uh-huh. got stories I was telling her. She never told me these stories, things that happened that I could des- describe in detail to her. Oh, and right. uh, that, that got her. But they both never believed. They always thought it was, um, um, you know, they, they didn't put me down. But they thought, oh, we don't know what's happened to him. You know, he was, you know, they never understood it really uh, until but, the day uh, my mother. Melon, you, know, you said that you don't need to uh, keep people in your life who are not okay, but what you squared it with your parents so that you were able to be with them? You know, it, it, I, what happened was, and I'm so glad I did that, because it was, it, it was um, if, you, if, you, if I was my old self, it would have been the most miserable experience, because they had never changed, only I had changed. Uh-huh, right. And parents can really get to you, you know? Yeah, I mean? really. <laughs> and so uh, by, by, the, um, by the end of this experience, I was at a place with them where we were healed, where, you know, I had all the talks with them that people wait to the grave to have. You know, they stand over their parents' grave to have these uh-huh. talks. I had had those talks, and I was clear, and we were at the best relationship ever mm. and that we'd ever known. Mm. Not because they changed, because I changed. Well, do you know, kind of a question here, why did you get this chance, do you know, or did were you told when you were there, you know, why did you come back, why did your brain cancer go away, or do you know? Well, you know, uh, I, I um, reincarnation's for real, so I, I was going to come back in some way, but um, the near-death experience um, itself, I was told, 
and this is in this is visitations after I learned all this after my near death experience and my visitations with the light because I didn't know until I met PMH Atwater and she introduced me to Dr. Ken Ring of the University of Connecticut, the two great researchers in the near death field, and they started studying me. I didn't know that there was no other near deather that went back to the light at will every day, and I want I did I go back to light whenever I want to, and wow. and I eventually developed a skill where I could do it in think tanks and do it for corporations and, and do it for projects, and it and my relationship with the light became one of of I go to the light, we we talk, I get information, and I bring back useful information. So I tell people that. My relationship with the light developed into one of a practical application of higher consciousness, not a philosophical or religious uh, uh, relationship. And so ever since my near-death experience, I've been a full-time inventor. Wow, and, that's uh, amazing. I invent things all the time. I, you know, I've been very lucky and blessed to um, have, have been involved in projects along the way. I have patents, and I've, I have patents in my name, and I've invented and, and patents for other companies and corporations, and um, I, I, I have been tested to be able to invent on cue, give me a subject, I'll invent something for you. Um, and I've been used in many medical experiments, but the one thing that has been the center of my life since then is that first question, why do we grow old and die? I've, I, I, I've had the chance and will be working on that the rest of my life. I think it's the most interesting question I can think of, and to that... I was able, in about five years after my experience, I was able to have met the right people who could understand what I was talking about, because I was talking quantum biology, and believe me, nobody in my hometown knew anything about any of that. But, you know. but when I met the right people, like um, you know, uh, Bruce Lipton's and Glenn Rhines and all of these kind of people, they knew what I was talking about. And that's when um, research began you know, in earnest, and um, I have developed many, many uh, inventions now dealing with this electrons and lights to regenerate the human body. And I've developed equipment for a, a good number of corporations, and this equipment's being used around the world, uh, including imaging technologies. But, but healing people with light is not a woo-woo thing. It's for real. And uh, the field of uh, phototherapy has since then, in the last 30 years, become a real thing. It's a real industry now. It's used everywhere. They, they have phototherapy in the space station to heal the astronauts because, you know, you don't heal in zero gravity unless you get stimulated with this light. But I uh, worked for corporations, of course, went through a lot of uh, very interesting stories with corporations. I'm sure. Many think tanks. And, Do you think, uh, Melon, you know, back to John's question of why you... Why did you get oh, yeah. uh, this reprieve? And do you think it's well, because you were able to come back and serve the light in this way because you are you do have these capacities to invent things? I got it. I sort of got an inkling of that when I was dealing with uh, these researchers saying you're the only one that does this and that and this that and the other. But then I, I, I have daily visitations with the light and. Um, you know the universe is is, a, is is so awesome it's quite humbling and 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 literally when one of my visitations I asked the light am I special or what's going on here and the light kind of laughed and said Melon you're a good example if you can do it anybody can oh how cute <laughs> oh so, so, you know in a, in a in a universe where every single thing even every atom is special that's pretty awesome you know. Oh, that's a perfect answer. That's wonderful, really. That's that's the answer. 
I said, as I was saying before, like how weird that you were, you know, not tuned into loving kindness and you got to come back. But that that's the answer. Perfect. Yeah, and I I don't I don't have like I said I don't know everything and I don't have every answer. I'm not interested in everything, and I do know that the day I died, there were m- many people dying and and probably much better people, much better qualified. And for whatever reason, that's not for me to know, some people don't come back. They move, they go on, maybe to their next incarnation. Would you get, like, the uh, internal questions, like, you know, why are we here, where are we from, those kind of things? Did yeah, you... oh, oh, yeah, especially uh, especially when I, I started going out, because the light did encourage me at one point in one of my visitations after um, I met uh, P.M.H. Atwater, I did ask the light, you know, should I do a book or whatever? And uh, people want me to. And the light said, just go tell your story. Mm-hmm. And and it and the light said at that point, don't sell your story. And what the light meant was, and I knew nothing about publishing, what the light meant was that publishers buy the intellectual property. They buy, you, you don't own your story anymore. Oh. Uh, it, the light never said, never said, don't do a book or anything. It said, don't sell your story to like these people. Mm. And I, so I, I, um, all these years have been happy to give the, uh, uh, basic story away to anybody that wanted to use it, any website, any book. And, uh, but I, I do have to tell you that at least 80% of my stories never, never been on the internet. And that's, that's the book I do want to get out at some point in the near future. Oh, you haven't written that yet. Cause you've talked about that, Mel, and you're doing a book. So you're still yeah, working and, on it, huh? It, well, it, it's just and you been, can self-publish it, now. So. It, yeah, so it, it, the, the world had to, I guess, come to this point where I'm, I'm now ready. But, um, uh, so, but I, I have talked about a lot of these things in my live talks and radio shows, but, but the whole story, and, and there were a lot of things in the early part of telling my story that I didn't want to talk about. They, they weren't very pleasant, it's things that I saw and things that happened. And um, I've matured with the experience. There were things I didn't want to say about my family and you know, the whole story. There were many things that I didn't, I just didn't feel I was capable of releasing to the public at that time. But, um, but you know, the, the, the great gift for me was I tell people that having a near-death experience and going to the light is not the greatest thing that's ever going to happen to you. It's not. The other side is not what it's cracked up to be by all these philosophers. It's not all. It's not all that. It isn't. There are so many things you cannot do in spirit, and there's so many things in a physical body that you can't do. But the perfect. The light has shown me that the perfect matrix is spirit and body together. In spirit and body together, you're almost unlimited if you if you just know it. And so the whole universe wants to be right where you are right now. Um, just spirit alone is a wasteland, and just a body without a spirit is a wasteland. But the two together, you know, is an incredible um, blessing once you get it. And so uh, there are so many people that believe they just want to be spirit and all that. Well, that, that's, that, that has some limitations. There are a whole lot of things you cannot experience, uh, uh, you know, that you can't experience in body and vice versa. And the two together, you can time travel, you can, you know, astral project, you, and all that. Uh, by the way, I was not into metaphysics at all, but I can tell you that most of that stuff is more real than people imagine, too. <laughs> wow. Oh, great. 
it really is. It's because uh, because we uh, we're just beginning because of taboos and religions and all that. Be, even beginning to be able to talk about this stuff with each other and share our experiences in in, in this modern time. Uh, you know, uh, a lot uh, many people have a misconception that my near death experience has made my life easier. I don't think any near deather will say that if you talk to them. It, it, it isn't about that. My life has not been easier. Uh, my understanding and my comfort in my own self is is where I want it to be. But having one of these experiences doesn't change the world around you. You no. know, people are still people, and and things happen. And uh, so I've had I've had my struggles along with everybody. But it's not magic. And you know, you, you'd be surprised how many emails I get on a regular basis of people asking me to get them the lottery number. And I can tell you, I've tried. Will you, yeah. have, do you know the future of, you know, mankind by any? You know, have they told you I, things I like that? Good, I, I got a good projection because just like um, with the lottery, um, the the light or the or what we call loosely the other side is completely powerless. There's no. It's not about power, and it's not about anything like uh-huh. that. What we call God is completely powerless. It's completely neutral. And if I could get the winning lottery number, that means anybody else could. <laughs> right. and I, see no, I see no example of psychics winning the lottery on a regular basis. I see no examples of that. You know. mm-hmm. uh, and, and the same thing with the future. Um, what I did learn that reincarnation is so multi-level that we're experiencing, and we can become aware of it, and we're going to become more aware of it, we're experiencing all of our lives in the same moment. And it expands like this opening lotus. It's a, you have to look at it as not a linear thing, but almost like a big bang that's happening. And you're, and you're, you're having your big bang. And the past, what we call the past, what we call the future, is happening right now. There's, and and, and our, our, our more recent teachers and yogis have said this whole thing about, you know, uh, there's, there is only the now. And that's, you will, you will, you will only experience the now. You will have an inkling of past memory. You will have inklings of the future, which we are projecting and making happen. And it's all intertwined happening at the same time. So if you want to look into the future, the light taught me, you have to look at the mass potential of everything that's going on, uh, personally in your life or in the world. And the mass potential is a lot more accurate than trying to uh, describe a certain event on a certain date. That's why all through history, m- prophets have been infinitely more wrong than they've ever been right. Yeah, yeah. I don't get those date projections. Yeah, and and you can almost you know you can almost bet all your money that when a prophet gives this date to the end of the world, it's not going to happen on that day. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but you can see the mass potential, and I tell you that the mass potential of our, uh, I'm just talking our world, our, you know, uh, us humans, and, and there's so much else out there, but, but just us. The, the, the mass potential in our core essence is so good and so bright, it's stunning where we're going with all this. Mm. Now, I have another question for you, Melon. Since your uh, experience is so much different than everyone else's and you were told so much, uh, did you experience other races or beings or you know from other galaxies and that kind of thing you know right was you know was your what you had was it just human or was there like all types of things there well i i've um i did ask that question and i've asked that question a num- i've asked that question a number of times to where i'm satisfied with with what i know about it I'm, i don't know everything and i'm not interested in everything but i can tell you 
My, the greatest thing I ever learned from the light that I live today is called the Gaia perspective, looking at whole systems, looking at the whole earth as one living being. You see, that's called the, the Gaia, G-A-I-A. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so when I asked the question about life in the universe and other planets, I was shown when I got my little tour that um, what we call life is one of the easiest things in the universe to pop up everywhere. You know, you ever see these little flowers and weeds that'll pop up in the middle of a highway or out of the center of a rock? Yeah, exactly, yeah. yes. When we understand what life is, it turns out to be one of the easiest things to happen in the universe and, and ah, at, all, at all levels. Really? And that, and that uh, uh, a little more uh, definitive answer for you is that the universe is full of life. And if you want to chuck it down, the predominant life form in the entire universe is microbial by 10 billion times to anything mm-hmm. else you can mention. And even on Earth, most life on Earth is microbial. And of the 10 trillion cells in your body, about 7 trillion of your cells are microbes. So, the, so that's what I'm saying when the past is here. The, the, the very cells that started life the, are living in our body right now. They never died. They're living in every body. And they're alive. The past never died, and uh, uh, and so there are so many life forms out there, and there are life forms, you know, a million years ahead of us, a million years behind us, and it, it, it's just awesome. But if you want to chunk it down to life forms that we humans at this time can either communicate with or even understand, that is a small number. And and I'm and I'm, by the way, I'm talking. Um, cosmological numbers here okay uh so um but but to find a species that we can because we can't even talk to dolphins and they're very intelligent you know what i mean <laughs> right yeah right uh, there'll be species that we're like dolphins to them but to well, find isn't the, that interesting when you start to think about extraterrestrials and uh make make presumptions and yeah. we think of them as creatures we could communicate with but isn't that, I've never really thought about that. We can't and, and, communicate with dolphins, and they are intelligent. Or plants, even. You know, uh-huh. uh, they're, they're fully conscious. You want, uh, plants yeah, Clive conscious. Baxter, you got to look at his work. And, uh, yeah, Cleve's one of my dear friends. You know, at one point, the light told me to find Cleve Baxter, and ever since uh, 87, and I still wow. know him today. So, so for a life form that we could communicate with understand probably won't look like us because it depends on your right. planet, your solar system, your your stars, radiation, all, all that comes into play. But to be able to communicate like we know communication right now for us uh, at our level is fairly rare. But that's in cosmological numbers. That means that there are at least 10 billion of these near us. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> but that's rare in the, in the whole universe. Oh. That's rare. <laughs> Well, we did one show, John and I, about the awesome size of the universe. I mean, beyond the beyond the beyond. So. And so yeah. you know, maybe these crop circles and stuff uh, are like them trying to talk to dolphins, you know, that kind of thing. And we, we kind of grok it. We kind of get by. <laughs> <laughs> Cute idea. And there may be other ways uh, that they've tried to communicate that we just don't even recognize right now. The other thing I was told that, uh, not all species are so stuck on intellectual. The, the, you know, uh-huh. their, uh, consciousness is like a rainbow, and if you're just stuck in the intellectual, you're going to miss most. You're not going to understand most of the universe. Uh-huh. If you're just stuck in science, or if you're just stuck in spirituality, you're not going to understand most of the universe. It's, it's, you have to become like a rainbow of consciousness. Uh-huh. To get what's going on, you know, in this universe, uh-huh. and um, 
so uh, so I've been very blessed to have you know to to be able to try to help this world with my inventions and my skills that I developed with my relationship with the light and uh, I'm very happy to tell people that I finally uh, I've worked with many corporations I've developed equipment that's been hundred thousand dollars or more you know very expensive high-end equipment for corporations and I always want to develop a light system that people could use at home because if you understand this electron photon energy uh, the best use of it is every day at your home because we are at the atomic level an energy system that needs to be recharged and most of the food and water and stuff that we take into our body is thrown out you know over eighty percent of it is unused and uh, and that's if you're eliminating <laughs> if you're not eliminating you know it, <laughs> it just builds up but uh, so I've always wanted to come up with a system, but corporations weren't interested in, in affordable systems and all that. But uh, I am working with a company today and, and for the last several years where we've been able to develop, I think, one of the greatest uh, phototherapy systems that's ever been with all my understanding and all the science work and all the research I've done for 30 years now. And uh, if people want to know about that, uh, they can go to a website called Light Health research.com and I want you to look at this it's called the dream spa and uh, what it can do for you and there's several uh, free webinars on the website and and in fact if, if people uh, I hope I can throw this in if people want to order one just on the website mention radio and you'll get a Mellon Thomas discount oh, okay mention radio I'll put a direct link on the site for you but this is the practical application of all the other work I've ever done being able to get it to your home so that you can use it and travel you can take it with you because what what uh, what what these two beings on the other side explained to me was uh, and especially Walter Russell is that we are nuclear systems and we need to feed the nuclear system and everything we eat drink everything that we do your body tries to get the electrons out of it and we live on what's called ATP basically everything everything that we know is life from bacteria to human beings lives on electrons and if that process stopped, you wouldn't be alive for five minutes. And so you can look at phototherapy. Yes, it does all the anti-aging stuff. That's because it replenishes your nuclear system. But it's like a battery charger for the human body. And we can get you to regenerate faster than you're degenerating. And that is that was the answer to my question on the other side. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> well, you were working on that. You just had your prototype when uh, I was at that Hawaii conference with you. Yeah, uh, yeah. I was just beginning to get. It out was on very my own. exciting, and everybody there was very excited about it. <laughs> and and John, uh, the the headquarters for it's in Chicago. You can go over and get a free session. Well, th there you go. I have to talk to you about that. <laughs> and so, you're, you're uh, going to be in Chicago in the near future too, didn't you? Say May, off air. We're going to do we're going to do a, a big thing because the the. What I do now, and um, and Suzanne was actually present at the first time I ever did this. Remember Sedona, uh, Suzanne? Uh-huh, right. I, I did my first real Gaia talk, and that was back in 2010. Mm -hmm. That has evolved because um, up till now, I'm someone that never thought I had a mission. My The light was my friend. I never felt compelled to put out a book. I never felt I didn't feel I had to save the world. Anyway, this was my friend, and I have... I have this great relationship. I never felt I had a mission, and uh, but uh, it was it was in Sedona, and this, I, I don't know if I ever told you the story. It was in Sedona after I did that Gaia little talk I did, which has become something quite very cool now. 
it was in Sedona that in one of my visitations with the light that uh, the light reminded me that in my original near death in '82, in one of my in, in some of the conversations, um, I was told it was explained to me that those of us that are living now on planet Earth right now are going to leave the largest legacy on planet Earth in the history of the entire world. And what will that legacy be? Will it oh be my, really? Good? Well, whether you know it or not, whether you want to participate in it or not. Us living today, which is one of the largest populations the Earth has ever known, what we do and what we leave behind affects the entire future of planet Earth. So, uh, um, and I was told that my work and what we, what I guess you call planet work now, though the light didn't call it that, but my work or my legacy is what the light told me would begin in 25 or 30 years back then. And you know what? Wow. I totally forgot about it. Wow. <laughs> that seemed wow. like a long time ago. Yeah, right. <laughs> And so I turned around one day, and, uh, and, and the light says, uh, it's time. And I said, for what? It's your, it's your legacy. It's your work time now. You know, and, I, and I said, well, what is it? And the light said, you're already doing it. <laughs> and, you just, and that became um, what I'm going to be doing in Chicago. And, and I'm going to be in uh, New York City at the uh, end of April with the uh, Institute of Noetic Sciences doing. Uh, that's all I do now is this Gaia thing out in public. I do a multimedia presentation where I walk you through four and a half billion years of Earth history from the point of view of the light. But basically, we're at a time in history where we have literally the most power we've ever had, the most freedom, mm -hmm. the most abundance. And since 1975, we've been in a different world that has never existed, and that's something people haven't thought about. Since 1975, we have technically, and this has never happened in the history of the world before, since 1975 on, we have technically been able, technically, which is the important part to remember we can actually do it not think about it uh we have technically been at a level that we can clothe feed comfort educate every human on earth without destroying the planet and uh everything changed we we uh and that um uh, so what was 75 why was it that date well 75 is was really really what people don't realize that was the peak of baby boomers having babies because uh, although the, the population what people don't realize the population really isn't growing we're hitting zero population growth in so many countries around the world now we we're not making nearly enough babies to sustain the population and that's and that and today really yeah, absolutely. Check it out. This is this is information demographics. The light, see, the light points me to go look at these things. The light gives me a lot of work to do. Yeah. But this is this is no not advertising companies are looking at this now because it changes the whole world. So what's happening is that most everybody now is over fifty years old on planet Earth. Isn't that interesting? Wow. Where do you think the the fifty sixty year olds are going to be by twenty sixty? They're not. They're going to reincarnated. Be well, well, we're, 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 you can actually reincarnate with a smaller population because you, you we're all one being, and you've heard of people with multiple personalities and walk-ins and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. That's that's actually has a lot to do with the concepts of reincarnation because you don't have you don't have there are many consciousness that we embody, you know, and um, so you don't you don't even have to die to reincarnate anymore. That that's that's an old concept, and uh, huh. but. Um, so by 2060, the, what I talk about in my Gaia talk is, yeah, let's talk about 2012, but that's just a date we've picked. The real dates are going to be 2020, 2040, and 2060. And the world population is going to go down so fast by 2060, and not by aliens, comets, plagues, or conspiracies, just by a 
and this is hitting this is hitting all over the planet right now. You look at how many countries are at zero population growth. Really? So the future is very different than what we know now. But we peaked where we have the technologies and we have the technical ability to take care of everybody. And the, the future after 2060 is going to be very different. And we, we who are living now that will be making the transition into our next incarnation, certainly by then for most of us, are going to leave a legacy. So you have to think about what kind of a world am I leaving to come back to? Hmm. It's, it's interesting. You, know, you say, And also in dealing with your children, um, birds of a feather flock together. Uh, you do reincarnate in cluster groups based on mostly uh, your issues. You know your 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 issues of uh, dependence of uh, you know of uh, all the emotional issues we have are usually the magnetic magnetic thing that brings us back to certain groups and what we call certain families. That's all breaking up. But we are um, about to change. The whole world is a the whole world has changed. Most people haven't realized it. Remember when um, Einstein said that. Since we've split the atom, the world has changed completely. Oh yeah, you see, that's it has, and mm -hmm. he had he, he had only an inkling of it, mm -hmm. um, and so uh, it's so what we do with our lives, those of us that are you know fifty, sixty, and all that right now, that what we're doing with this time of our life, which the light calls the legacy time, we're doing and can do the most important work the planet has ever known. And that means we've got to be more active now, politically uh, and every way active, because there's no reason we're letting idiots control the world. <laughs> I thought you know, we already so did. <laughs> I, I asked, uh, I said, you know, what's, what's been the most trouble in the world? And the light said to me, kings, priests, thieves, and generals. Mm -hmm. These are the people that have caused the most trouble in the whole world. Why do we even listen to them anymore? See what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And but we we have the most freedom uh, ever. And I you know I went down and visited, hung out with a lot of the ninety nine percent people you know in the Occupy. Oh, we you have did. A lot of that. Yeah, we have a lot of that. Oh, I'm so in love with that movement. And and I went down and hung out with them. And they're saying, oh, we're the ninety nine percent, all the one percent, or it's really you know the reality shows it's the point five percent own everything. And they, they were moaning and you know activated. And I kept telling them. But listen, we have 99% of the vote. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> they yeah. are a fish in a sea of us. And so we are the most powerful we've ever been. Uh, when What we've got to go, we've got to transcend beyond the point of having uh, kings and these high priests and all of these people getting us into wars. Because you look at who's causing all the wars, really. It's not the average people like you and me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, definitely. And, and, and why don't we hold all of our leaders accountable now? We, we just let them slide. We can't let them slide anymore. And, you know, I, um, I try to activate people, and people say, what should I believe in, though? And I said, you know, I can't possibly tell you what to believe in, but I do tell you this. Whatever it is you believe in, now's the time to activate it, and it will all work out. Yeah, you bring such a wonderfully reassuring message. Or, yeah, you do. You know, not that everything's peaches and cream, but just of the empowerment of us human beings and such a really um, good energy just that, to, you know, you, you tune us into, really. Definitely. i got to say, by far, Melon, you've actually probably been my best guest I've ever had. Just oh, absolutely okay. amazing, my friend. Well, I had a yeah. long way to come, and I had a lot of lessons, and I still have a lot of lessons to learn since my experience. But it, uh, but I was given sort of the Rosetta Stone to understand. That was the mm -hmm. gift. I call it the Gaia perspective. I was given the Rosetta mm -hmm. Stone to see how the whole thing fits. Because 
as I, as I show in my uh, Gaia multimedia presentation, that most of us, because of our belief systems, our life events, and our dogmas, it's like we're all looking through a tube at a painting. So we're only seeing the great masterpiece one inch at a time. Mm. And, cert- and if you look at the world that way, certain parts of it look like hell, certain parts of that same painting look like heaven, and other parts we don't even understand what it looks like. And I do this uh, whole multimedia thing where I, I actually make this a visual experience for you. But when you, when you look at it from the Gaia perspective and you see the whole painting, you go, oh, I get it. I get all, how all those parts work. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's a lot to think about, actually. <laughs> <laughs> There's no other way to put it. I mean, my mind is just reeling right now from all this. And, and now I'm hearing we're going to wait for the book, too, because there's uh, 80% more that's not in the account. But the account is really so wonderful. I was going to say, Melon, give us any website information you want again. Give it to my, me right uh, now again. Pers- okay, thank you. Um, uh, my personal website is melon-thomas. That's melon, M-E-L-L-E-N-thomas.com. And that's my, uh, that's my personal uh, near-death website. And then the, uh, the fruit of my work and the fruit of my experience is uh, the Inventions and Technologies, which is um, lighthealthresearch.com, where you can check out what I've been doing. And it's only recently, and I'm having my website upgraded now, it's only recently that I'm even going to show people all the stuff I've been doing. Because I've worked with so many companies and there are so many inventions that people don't know I'm, I'm, I was on that project. And I'll be showing uh, uh, pictures. You know, every story I tell, I have photographs, video, <laughs> recordings, everything. Is, ever since my near-death experience, I have been highly documented. Yeah, that's yeah. an amazing thing. And I tell you what, what I'm going to do for you too, Melon. Guarantee, when you come to Chicago, you know that limousine ride you got screwed out of when you came back to life. I will, yeah. I will get you a limousine. I guarantee it. Mm-hmm. A good friend of mine owns a limousine company out here. <laughs> oh, perfect. And I, I'll give Shamrock Limousine. I'll give him a plug. And I guarantee, Melon, when you get in town, you let me know when. I will get you your limo. <laughs> Thank you. Finally. <laughs> and you don't even have to die for it. <laughs> oh, that's even better. You know, thanks. I'll, 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 I'll definitely look forward to visiting you in Chicago. Okay. Well, we're actually running a little low on time here. I know our friend uh, Suzanne has to get out of here really yeah. soon here. So I, I can hear her starting to tap on the floor. <laughs> Let's do it again sometime. There's plenty, there's plenty more things we can uh, all Well, you have about. to come down here and talk in my TED thing, Mel. Oh, I, I have to, I have to yeah. create a date for you. And maybe we'll create a whole day after that for anybody listening from Los Angeles where you can do your longer presentation also. I'm excited about that. Well, definitely. I mean, we went uh, an hour and 45 minutes so far, and I got a hunch we haven't even touched a tenth of oh what you God. know. Oh, my God. I mean, have to get out. I didn't even look I know. at the time. Okay, well, that, late for my day. well, that'll okay. be out for now. But it was great talking with you, Melon and Suzanne. We'll talk to you guys later. Off and okay. running. Thanks so much. All right, that was Suzanne Taylor and Melon Thomas-Benedict. We'll be right back to listening to Thresholds Radio. TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-Info. 
Welcome back to Thresholds Radio. Well, that last interview was just absolutely amazing. I think uh, Melon Thomas Benedict is the most... I don't even know how to put it. I'm just, I don't know what to say. That interview was absolutely amazing. I know you had to miss it, unfortunately, too, Mike, but do you know who uh, Melon Thomas is? I think I've told you before, haven't I? Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry that I did because that's a subject that I'm really interested in. Uh, yeah, I, I think I've I've heard of him before in some of the books I've read on the subject. Said so he actually was dead, literally dead for over an hour and a half. Absolutely flatlined, turned gray, and had rigor mortis. And then came back to tell about it. I mean, oh my gosh! And wow, I, I, I'm looking forward to hearing it uh, when the show airs. And it's we're actually going to talk to him again because I just got an email from Melon. Now I had another question pertaining to the paranormal in afterlife because he says we're all reincarnated right away, and I had questions, and uh, he already answered me and said uh, that they're in fact our ghosts and everything, and he'll go into detail. He says it'll take hours, so he's not even going to tell me on the phone. So we'll have him on again for a follow up. Wow, that's fascinating. You know, I'm. I'm particularly a big fan of Dr. Raymond Moody. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He he was sort of the grandfather of the near-death experience. He was one of the doctors that first started documenting the cases. And he is a little bit more, uh, I'd say, on the skeptical side of the whole thing. He he says that, it, that near-death experiences don't really prove that there is an afterlife. They, like, they just move the goalpost back. Is he, the one so, that, is he the one that says that uh, it's just neurons firing in the brain when you get these effects? I've no, heard that theory before. See, he's not, yeah, he's not, a, he's not that big of a skeptic, but basically what he's saying is, well, near-death experiences prove that something is going on with our consciousnesses beyond what we consider to be death. So we set this point, well, medical death is this definition Clearly, there's something else going on, and maybe it doesn't mean we survive for, you know, a thousand years beyond our bodily death. Maybe it only means that our consciousness survives another hour or two past, you know, biological death or That's whatever. That's amazing. I say Mellon, actually, he's the most studied near-deather in the world and has taken part in more research and think tanks than any other near-deather in the entire world. And now he's actually an inventor. And he has ideas from the afterlife. He's heard things from there, and he's actually designing them and building them now. Well, I, I have to believe that if if your brain can show zero brain activity, and yet you continue to have some sort of conscious experiences, that shows that your consciousness is separate from your brain and can survive you know, bodily death. Yeah, it's, I'd say it's an amazing thing. You'll have to, as odd as this sounds, uh, you'll have to <laughs> listen to this interview when it airs, considering you missed the first half of it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's one I'm I'm really looking forward to. That's that's really the subject that got me interested in the paranormal to begin with. I had a lot of close relatives die when I was very young, and so that whole question of, well, what happens when we die, you know, does something continue on, that basically motivated me to to start reading about the paranormal. I'll tell you what, when we have Mellon back on again, I'll make sure I've got you on the air, too, so you can talk to him. Say, actually, I found one of his quotes here. He's considered, one of his quotes is, he's the encyclopedia of the afterlife. That's actually what some of the doctors call him because he just seems to know all the answers. Well, that's that's quite a title. I mean, <laughs> yes, I'd, I'd say so. So uh, anything new in the news lately? You hear anything paranormal-wise? Anything going on? 
No, I haven't really heard anything in the news. There, there have been a couple of local stories uh, about some, you know, paranormal tours and things like that. But other, other than that, I mean, it's a pretty slow time for uh, for ghost stories. Yeah, I haven't heard anything. Like I've been actually pretty busy this week, but no major stories have come across my eyes either. Yeah, well, I, I know that uh, one of the things that this show originally intended to talk about was UFOs. Right. And we've been heavy on the paranormal lately. Well, that's actually making so, up for we were so heavy on the UFOs for like the first <laughs> year. Well, so one of the things I thought that I would do is read this top 10 UFO encounters. You know, usually my top 10 lists are about ghosts. So I thought we'd balance out the program with this UFO encounters. Yeah, I think uh, I list. know. I think I know that list too. Yeah, well, uh, you uh, wrote it. I, I think. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. Oh okay. So <laughs> as as the person who wrote this list, uh, because you know I, I used to be interested in UFOs back when I was a lot younger, and I kind of lost track of the whole subject. So I figured, well, why not have someone who knows more about it write the list? And so I wanted to ask you, uh, what what was your favorite encounter here? Now, these are only encounters in Illinois. Well, to be right? honest, uh, unlike, you know, your lists on a lot of this stuff, every single one of these is actually very documented, whether yours, a lot of yours have come into the folklore, you know, how we talk about that. These are documented cases. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they're all amazing. I mean, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. It's only a one through eight, though. I had, a, I just couldn't decide on the other ones, so I kind of broke your rule and made a one to eight list. <laughs> well, I, I don't think that the readers mind very much, but I, you know, I kind of sorted these by the the fame of the uh, of the case, you know, the amount of witnesses, that kind of thing. But it's interesting because I, I live up here in Rockford, Illinois, and I guess that there's a lot of sightings in this area. Yeah, Rockford's a hotbed. And it's, I think when I made that list, you told me you were unaware of that. In Rockford, there was a lot of sightings. Yeah, I had no idea. Although we do have a small airport here, and there's a lot of people on drugs. So. <laughs> okay. Hey, I, you know, offhand, I wrote that list a while ago. I don't remember it, but one of those numbers was that one that like hovered outside a, a complex or something real low to the ground. Oh, mm. I don't remember which one that was. You'll read it, but that one I found rather amazing. I had not heard of that before, where the thing was like 20 foot off the ground in a parking lot, where it says somebody somebody opened their window and looked outside and there's this big, huge UFO hovering <laughs> right in the parking lot. Well, there was a real interesting, now this isn't, this isn't on your list, but I know that you interviewed a couple months ago Larry Wilson, who wrote that book, uh, Chasing Shadows. Right. And in the book, there's a couple of weird UFO-like encounters in central Illinois. I know there's a, a bunch of different um, MUFON affiliates downstate, and they got some interesting tales as well. And I just, I've been so out of the loop on that subject that I didn't realize that there were so many... Uh, sightings that were reported. Well, that's actually why I ended up with only eight, too, because those are the big, big ones I could find. But there were so many more. I just couldn't decide what else to do. I mean, there, mm. there's thousands and thousands in Illinois. Well, uh, even though rightly you should be reading the list since you were the one that wrote it, <laughs> oh, no. I'll uh, I'll be happy to go down the list with, with you. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. I actually haven't looked at it since I wrote it, so I don't remember what they are anyway. So I'll, I'll just act surprised the whole way. Okay. This is uh, the top eight UFO encounters in Illinois. Number eight is the Wayne City Chase. This sighting took place on August 4th, 
1963, in Wayne City, Illinois. As a young couple was leaving the drive-in movie The Great Escape at around 11.30 p.m., the boyfriend, Ronnie, glanced out the window to the south and saw a big white object moving along a treetop level about 20 degrees above the horizon to the southwest. He described it as fuzzy and about the size of a wash tub. It's, you know, it's kind of interesting as a side note, the the ways that people describe these crafts. Yeah, especially like since they, from 1950s. <laughs> yeah, well, they just point to things that, you know, in their experience, it kind of looked like it, like a wash tub or, you know, we'll, we'll hear a, diff- a bunch of different ones in the list. So both witnesses watched and casually talked about the light for several minutes. Then they discovered that the light seemed to be keeping pace with them. Ronnie reported that when he sped the car up, the object seemed to speed up. When he decelerated, the object seemed to slow down. Upon arrival at his girlfriend's home, the object appeared to move closer, so they went inside, turned out the lights, and watched through a window. After 15 minutes had passed, Ronnie decided he had better go home. He made a run for the car, and as soon as he pulled away, the object began to follow. The object now changed from a brilliant white to a duller or dimmer light with an orange tinge and moved in front of the car. Ronnie said he really poured the coal to the car (laughs) and must have been doing 120 miles an hour until he made it home. Yeah, this guy probably was around before there were cars, so... (laughs) I wrote it exactly how I saw it. So, I mean, the terminology is exactly how he put it in the report. Yeah. And sometimes I feel like I should be reading these like a 1930s newsman. Yeah, there you like, go. <laughs> on February 2nd, 2002, shortly before midnight. And you got to hold your uh, right hand over your ear because they yeah. always did that. <laughs> so, okay. So, number seven is Amber Lights over Urbana Champagne. On February 2nd, 2002, shortly before midnight, Various students and residents of these twin college towns observed clusters of amber-hued lights flashing in a line across the sky from southwest to northeast. The most convincing witness, a police officer, watched objects hover above Memorial Stadium, and uh, I actually went and saw Weird Al Yankovic at Memorial Stadium, but that's a a side (laughs) note, and reported all kinds of chatter about unidentified objects on his scanner that night. One witness said that some buildings had been lit up with spotlights originating from the object. Now next is number six, the Franklin Park sighting. On May 28, 1979, a Boy Scout leader led 13 boys on a hike up Blueberry Hill. Suddenly, at 3.45, as the group reached the top of the hill, a high-pitched whine was heard coming from above. Startled, the campers looked up. A pulsating metallic saucer, about 20 feet in diameter, was hovering 50 to 60 feet above the ground. The UFO had a flat, shiny, reflective bottom, and its half-dome shape was topped by a smaller dome giving off a reddish glow. The entire saucer was surrounded by a purplish mist, and the glowing red dorm was revolving. When the high-pitched sound was heard again, the saucer began to move, and then it suddenly took off straight up. The total observation time was about 30 seconds. Now, number five is an attempted landing in Downers Grove. I think that's the one I was talking about earlier. Yes, uh, I believe so. At about 8 p.m. on July 12th in the year 2000, a building security guard saw a bunch of bright lights. 
he went out to the south parking lot and saw, quote, a huge object that was trying to land in the parking lot. He said it was as long as eight buses and almost as high. He described the object as dark silver and blue in color with a goldish stripe across it and underneath looked concave. He said, quote, the UFO hovered over the parking lot for almost a minute without making any sound. At that time, some of the tenants came out because this object was right outside their window. Even the entire cleaning crew saw it as well. So a lot of witnesses to that one. And it didn't have a parking permit either. That was the big thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably why it didn't uh, land there. Exactly. So number four is the 2006 Chicago O'Hare UFO sighting. And one of the things that strikes me about all these is that they've happened uh, so recently, too. Exactly. You, know, you think you think these sightings would go back to the you know 1930s or something, but no, a lot of these are, are recent. Well, there actually was too. Don't get a misconception. They've been sighted since you know like the beginning of time. These are just the oh, ones yeah. I could find the most you know press on. That's why I went with. Well, these. no, I mean what I mean is that sightings continue. Oh, to correct, be right? Made, you know, every year. So this was from 2006. And approximately 4.30 p.m. on Tuesday, November 7, 2006, federal authorities at Chicago O'Hare International Airport received a report that a group of 12 airport employees were witnessing a metallic saucer-shaped craft hovering over gate C-17. They also received a report that approximately a dozen witnesses were observing a small round disc-shaped object, metallic in appearance, which hovered over gate C-17. The disc was visible for approximately two minutes and was seen by a dozen or so United Airlines employees, ranging from pilots to supervisors. The UFO was then seen to suddenly accelerate straight up through the overcast skies. Witnesses reported that the object left behind an open hole of clear air in the cloud layer and that the mysterious hole disappeared or closed within a few minutes. So far, no conclusive photographic evidence of the UFO has surfaced. Isn't that amazing? That part blows me away. It took off so fast it actually left a hole in the clouds. I mean, think <laughs> yeah. about that. I mean, that's like sounds like the Roadrunner cartoons or something. Number three was the Tinley Park light. A triangular formation of reddish, reddish lights were seen at low to intermediate altitude by hundreds of witnesses on three separate occasions in late 2004 and early 2005 producing multiple videos, photos, and mainstream local news coverage over two suburbs of Chicago, Illinois. The object or objects maneuvered slowly within a busy airspace near O'Hare International Airport. The incident was investigated by MUFON and reported widely in the metropolitan media. It was also featured on an episode of UFO Hunters on the Sci-Fi Channel. That was actually pretty good, too. Amazing thing about that one is it's on, it's been caught on multiple videos from hmm. multiple angles, which, you know, makes it really hard to debunk when you got, you know, multiple views. Oh, yeah, that's always the, the best, you know. And that's why I've always said that uh, at least UFO investigating, you know, investigating UFOs and Bigfoot, at least you can have some, like, tangible... Right. Evidence that you collect. Ghosts are much more uh, trickier. Well, they're, they're shy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, okay. So, number two, uh, which I mentioned earlier, is the Rockford sightings. Rockford gets our number two spot based on the sheer number of mass sightings alone. There have been yellow lights, red glowing spheres, numerous bright lights, and orbs. There was even a mass sighting of a large triangle like the famous Phoenix lights. 
To this day, strange orb-like objects are seen in the night sky, according to hundreds of Rockford area residents. In February 2000, there were multiple sightings of clusters of yellow lights over the Rockford area, and around 9 p.m. on January 11, 2001, Rex Channel 13 Television, uh, which I have been interviewed for in the past, <laughs> and other news media reported that they have received some 600 reports of UFOs over the city. Sometimes as many as 12 lights or UFOs were reported conducting maneuvers, and some computer and electrical shutdowns coincided with the reports. And you're from the Rockford area too, aren't you? Yes, I yeah, I live there right now, but uh, I you, honestly have never seen a UFO. And no one you know there has ever heard of them, this, all these sightings? No, but uh, then again, I don't really talk about it with many people. Yeah, that's true. I mean, usually I just talk about ghost stories. Yeah, or just talk in the bars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, okay, so number eight was the Wayne, the Wayne City Chase. Number seven was the Amber Lights over Urbana-Champaign. Number six was the Franklin Park sighting. Number five was the attempted landing in Downers Grove. Number four was the 2006 Chicago O'Hare UFO sighting. Number three was the Tinley Park lights. Number two were the Rockford sightings. And the number one uh, most famous UFO sighting in Illinois was the St. Clair Triangle. Now, this St. Clair Triangle refers to a mass of sightings occurring around 4 a.m. on January 5th, 2000, in St. Clair County, Illinois. Since that time, the area has become famous for its huge, huge wave of triangle sightings that still continue to this day. More than eight different police departments witnessed and even pursued the large uh, triangular craft. At one point, the craft jumped over 20 miles in just seconds. It traveled over the towns of Highland, Dupo, Lebanon, Summerfield, Milstadt, and O'Fallon. Five on-duty Illinois police officers in separate locales, along with various other witnesses, reported the massive, silent, triangular aircraft operating at unusual range of near-hover to incredibly high speeds at treetop altitudes. The incident was examined in an ABC special called Seeing is Believing by Peter Jennings, an hour-long special UFOs over Illinois produced by the Discovery Channel, as well as a sci-fi channel special entitled Proof Positive. So that was a very famous case. Yeah, to say the least, that's why it's the number one. Yes, exactly. So those, there you have it, top eight UFO encounters in Illinois, but there are always new ones happening, so you never know what could be added to the list. Quite a bit. The list would have to be pretty darn big. It would take you a few hours to read it. <laughs> well, that would be interesting, you know, there's a lot of websites out there like the Shadowland Index of Haunted Places that track ghost sightings, you know, throughout the various states. Right. Are there any websites that just have this, a compre comprehensive list? Oh, yes. There's quite a few. Actually, there, I have an app from my Android phone that actually huh. uh, ties into the MUFON database, and it gives me live info on all the newest sightings. Interesting. I, I wish I could afford an Android phone. <laughs> they're, they're not that expensive. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, so, that's just about all that I have for today. Oh, and by the way, we were going to have Ron Fabiani this week, but we rescheduled Ron for next week. So he's still going to be on. We just had a little delay there. We had uh, Melon Thomas on instead, and that was an opportunity I had to take advantage of. Yeah, he's, you know, Ron is always a, a great guest. I love that guy. 
Yeah, he's going to – we'll have Ron on next week and see what amazing adventures Ron – he's always – I mean, my gosh, for people who don't know Ron, he's he's a cop, he's a paranormal investigator, he's a uh, a singer, songwriter. I mean, my gosh, he, <laughs> I don't, he does everything. I don't know how that man has any time. Yeah, well, and he's not just a paranormal investigator. I mean, I think the way that he goes about it, because of his background as a police officer, he really brings a level of professional – uh, professionalism to it that a lot of other groups lack, I think. Oh, definitely. I can wait until Ron tries to like slap the cuffs on a ghost, though. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, you know, it must be hard for policemen to have friends because even as a friend of Ron's, I'm afraid to say anything around him <laughs> or else, you know, <laughs> he's going to come after me. Yeah, Ron's like got to be the nicest uh, cop I know, actually. He's a really, really nice guy. Yeah. But, uh, hey, did you want to hit on uh, your uh, other aspect of your life tonight again? It's getting kind of exciting, your other stuff going on, isn't it? Did you oh, want... my, my political race? Yeah, well, so I was on Ed Shanahan's show uh, a week ago or so, and the local newspaper here in Rockford did kind of what I thought was a little bit of a hit piece on me because they really kind of took the way that he promoted the show and ran with it. And so there was a blog post in the Rockford Register Star saying, uh, paranormal author turned politician. And the whole article basically, I think, was designed to make me look like a crazy person. And uh, so, you know, I, as we talked about last episode of the show, it's been so far, I mean, it's been effective for me to separate kind of my paranormal interest and the writing I do about that from this political campaign. But believe me, I mean, if if this is something that uh, my opponent can seize upon, she'll do that, you know. And it's not just her. I mean, uh, the media around here is going to go after anyone they don't agree with. And they're not afraid to use that to try to discredit me. Yeah, I mean, when it comes down to it, they always get people for stuff. But it's not as if, you know, you know, you're cheating on a wife or you're doing bizarre stuff, which they always catch. You just enjoy paranormal research and history. I mean, so it's yeah, really I, no big deal. Well, there there are plenty of people. Of course, there's a lot of very religious people in this area who might uh, take offense to it. But overall, I think that, you know, people understand that uh, it's just an interest and a hobby. I mean, everybody has strange things. It's like if I enjoyed competitive skateboarding or something, I mean— I, I don't really see what the big deal is. But again, I mean, there's some very religious people who think that the paranormal is evil and that people should stay away from it. Exactly. Well, we so, don't, but, we don't, let's say we don't want to get too political now. We'll lose our audience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although, you know, what I told the reporter on the phone, see, at least he called me before he did this blog post to allow me to clarify now, he didn't use a whole lot of what I said to to inform yeah, his article. They kind of pick and choose. <laughs> yeah. So, But basically, you know, I said there's a lot of overlap between people who are interested in uh, politics and people who are interested in ghost stories and UFOs. I mean, just, just uh, if you look at like Art Bell's audience, for example, you know, he's got a lot of people listening to his show who... Uh, or Art Bell's not even doing the show anymore. Who is it now? George Norrie? George Norrie, right. Yeah, it shows the last time I listened to that <laughs> show. Uh, but anyway, you know, he's got a lot of fans 
who also are interested in political conspiracy theories, who probably listen to Alex Jones, you know, so I, I think that there's a, a big kind of overlap of interest there. Well, the news just tries to get that stuff like the Hillary Clinton when the, they were in the White House. Uh, she had a friend that was a uh, a psychic or something, and the news got wind of that. And there was a big thing about that for a while. I don't know if you remember that one <laughs> or not. No, I, I don't remember that at all. No, that was actually a big thing for a while because they got wind of that. Even though she wasn't, like, using the psychic, it made it sound like, you know, we were running our government by psychic advice or something. <laughs> you know what? I I think maybe that might be a better uh, way of doing it, considering the way things have gone. Oh, definitely. We need to completely eliminate government, actually. I mean, you could, you could probably uh, roll a dice and determine policy that would make more sense than the way it's done. Yeah, pretty much. So I would, I mean, I'm not too political. It's just, I just know it's a complete disaster and it, it's not as if it just got that way. It's been that way for ages. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the problem is, I mean, in my own campaign, I propose some pretty radical reforms and everybody just looks at me like, oh, we can't do that. Well, why not? I mean, if we all recognize that things are going badly and that they're broke, just because something has been the way it's been for a while doesn't mean we can't reform it and, you know, exactly put things in place that we think can fix the problem. Okay, we got to let you go. I know you're running out of time here. Yeah, but uh, next week, uh, we'll be talking to Ron Fabiani. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. So Okay, Mike, I'll talk to you later. All right, talk to you later. All right, that was Michael Clean. We hope you enjoyed the show. Join us next week, Friday, 10 p.m., theedgeonair.com or ufo-info.com on Sunday at 7.30. See you next week.